You're listening to the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and if you're joining us on 101.9 Chai FM or the Jerusalem Post, welcome to the program. It is nice to uh, be having uh, this engagement once again on a Monday morning. And this particular show today that we're going to be doing is going to be focused on uh, sort of a shopping centre, really, sort of a shopping centre. I'm sure that if you are a regular listener to this program, and indeed if you live in the area around FM, you will know about Balfour Park, a Balfour Park shopping centre, and we're sort of going to be going into the background to Balfour Park shopping centre, because Balfour Park uh, was named after a guy called Lord Arthur Balfour, and originally before it was a shopping centre, it was actually a Jewish sports club. So the question is, why did the Jews uh, decide to uh, name a sports club after Lord Arthur Balfour, who was in fact not Jewish uh, himself? Uh, And the answer is that because a hundred years ago, in November, so coming up uh, in a little while, the Balfour Declaration giving uh, the United Kingdom support to the establishment of a Jewish homeland was started and or, or proclaimed rather and it has enormous consequences for the Middle East, for Jews, for all sorts of other people ever since and a lot of people have been writing about what is the consequences and thinking about the Balfour Declaration a hundred years later. Uh, if you read uh, Mosaic magazine uh, a, f- a few months ago, they put an interesting article about some of the international diplomacy that went into it. And if you are a regular reader of something called Fathom, which is something we've covered on the program before, Fathom magazine uh, connected to Bicom, they put a number of perspectives out about the meaning of the Balfour Declaration a hundred years ago. Of course, Bicom being connected uh, to uh, Israel advocacy and uh, discussions around the Middle East uh, in the UK. So particularly appropriate for this particular uh, topic and joining us today to discuss the Balfour Declaration and what it means in contemporary society, we have Toby Green. He is in fact uh, from Bicom. Uh, he did one of the the pieces relating to the Balfour Declaration. He's a senior research fellow there and also is a postdoctoral fellow at the Israel Institute Leonard Davis Center in Hebrew U. So a guy who really knows his stuff. Toby, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. It's a pleasure, Benji. Thank you for having me. So just uh, start off, give us a bit of a background. What actually is the Balfour Declaration? The Balfour Declaration is a very short letter written by uh, the British Foreign Secretary in 1917 to a, a British Zionist leader, Lord Rothschild, in which the UK, um, in which Britain does uh, nothing more than express uh, favour for the idea of establishing in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people and committing to use what it calls its best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. It's a very, very short letter, very sort of vaguely and uh, generally worded, but it's uh, very critical historically because this commitment or this, um, uh, not even commitment, this expression of support for the idea of creating a Jewish national home in Palestine because Britain then shortly after came to occupy Palestine, capturing it from the Ottoman Turks, Britain actually had the ability to follow through and make this a reality with international support. So uh, this very short letter became very pivotal uh, historically for that reason. Uh, Quickly, if you don't mind, before we get into the the Balfour Declaration itself, you said it went to uh, one of the Rothschild family. I believe that another one, uh, James Rothschild, was also involved. Uh, In terms of that family, what was their involvement with with the Zionist enterprise at the time? Well, they, they were supporters of the Zionist movement. Walter Rothschild, the uh, uh, um, 
the head of the family in the in Britain was a key supporter of the Zionist movement. He wasn't himself um, the leading figure involved in negotiating the document, but he was the most uh, high-profile, most establishment Zionist figure in the UK at the time, and so uh, he uh, uh, was uh, the recipient of the letter. But it, it's not a personal letter to him. Uh, in fact, the letter states that uh, it requests that he bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation in the UK and the wider Zionist world. So he was kind of the, the target, the figurehead recipient of the letter, but the key figures of the Zionist movement who were actually involved in negotiating it were principally Chaim Weizmann and also Nachum Sokolov and others. Well, we're going to go into a little bit uh, of, the, of the personalities later on. The Balfour Declaration in the hundred years since has become something of a, of a controversial document. Uh, can you tell us why and, and, and what's going on behind that? Well, look, there were controversies surrounding it at the time, but uh, it's also controversial to this day. And I think that's principally because of the very different legacies that this, that the, um, document is, has for, for, uh, uh, for Jews, for Israelis, for, for supporters of Israel around the world, and for Palestinians and Palest supporters of the Palestinians in the wider, uh, Arab world. Um, from the perspective of, uh, of the Jewish people and the states of Israel and the Zionist movement, this, this document is seen, uh, as a key, um, uh, element, a key part of the story of the sort of Jewish narrative uh, uh, of the 20th century in a very positive light for, for three key reasons. Firstly, it was uh, pivotal in, in um, uh, bringing about international recognition of the justice and right of the idea of the Jewish people having a place in the world that they could call their own, where they could live by right without fear of persecution after many centuries of persecution all around uh, the world, and that that uh, national home ought to be in the uh, what for Jews is historic land of Israel, Eretz Israel, which was known uh, politically uh, uh, geographically as, as Palestine. So that was a key recognition. And secondly, that recognition actually led to the creation of a physical uh, Jewish national home, uh, not simply because of the Balfour Declaration, but because the UK then managed to garner international support for that uh, through a League of Nations mandate and to turn that into an international legal reality. And that legal a political entity of the Jewish national home actually provided a refuge for hundreds of thousands of Jews who, uh, who fled as refugees from Europe in the 1930s, especially, and also the 1920s. And then after, after the Holocaust, of course, that Jewish national home um, became the basis of the State of Israel, which for Jews, of course, is, the, is you know a, a source of rejuvenation after the terrible catastrophe of the Holocaust. So for Jews, it's a key part of their narrative of salvation, but for Palestinians, it's, it's the absolute opposite. From their perspective, this was uh, Great Britain and imperial power promising what they perceived to be their country or their land to a people that had no no right to it. And the process of which the Balfour Declaration uh, is a part led ultimately to what Palestinians and Arabs call Nakba, which is catastrophe, which is um, how they refer to the Arab-Israeli War of 1947 and 1948, or for Israelis and Jews as Israel's War of uh, Independence, is for Palestinians and Arabs uh, their Nakba catastrophe, in which um, 650,000 approximately uh, uh, Arabs of Palestine become become refugees. And so they look back on, on the Balfour Declaration as a key moment in, in this uh, history leading up to catastrophe, whereas Jews see it as a 
moment in the history of their salvation. So these very different perspectives uh, make the document very, very controversial to this day. Now, coming part of that mythology and the narrative that you're talking about on the Jewish side, there's a lot of uh, stuff which is kind of uh, being put in in terms of why did Britain grant this in the first place? And there's a lot of legends almost, I suppose you could call them, about why they changed their mind. You mentioned uh, Chaim Weizmann, for example, and his role in this and his particular role as a, as a chemist. Uh, there's other people that say that it had to do with uh, Lord Arthur Balfour, who was what we would call these days a sort of a Christian Zionist. And others say that there was a, a good way for Britain to become and make a promise, uh, imperial promise, uh, to the to the Jews that would help them fight the war that was the First World War at that stage. Where do you see some of these threads in terms of what actually produced the document in the first place? Well, you're absolutely right, and you've mentioned many of the. Uh, explanations that are given as to why the UK uh, issued uh, this this document, uh, and I think that um, it, I don't think there is any one uh, one clear answer. This that question about the history of the Balfour Declaration, how it came to be issued, is remains to this day a source of enormous fascination for historians. And books continue to be published. Very detailed historical works continue to be published exactly on the question or focused entirely on the question of, of, of how the Balfour Declaration uh, uh, came about. And many of those explanations are, are, that you mentioned are relevant. I don't think uh, there is one uh, single answer. Certainly, the charismatic leadership and the persuasive powers of the likes of Chaim Weizmann and Nechem uh, Sokolov were absolutely uh, pivotal. And yes, Chaim Weizmann, one of the ways Chaim Weizmann built his reputation and uh, won over friends in Whitehall and in the British government was through his efforts as a chemist, which were significant in helping the British Navy during the First World War. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that that's for that reason uh, the Balfour Declaration was issued, but it certainly uh, helped uh, Weizmann develop his um, his uh, network and uh, uh, and was uh, um, and had uh, uh, some relevance. But the personal persuasive powers of the Zionist leaders were one element. Uh, the beliefs and attitudes of the British leadership, whether it's to some extent altruistic, some genuine sympathy towards the Jewish cause, uh, perhaps some element of uh, attachment to the Bible, as you as you suggested, but also um, being persuaded that this was in Britain's interest. And I think the context of the First World War is absolutely critical here. Tens of thousands of, of, of British uh, soldiers being killed and wounded each week um, in a desperate, uh, um, uh, uh, bloody struggle, uh, perhaps the bloodiest conflict um, uh, in those terms that the world has ever seen. Uh, the ministers and the members of the government their, themselves or their sons uh, have been fighting and dying on the front line. So Britain is, in, is, is locked in a, a cataclysmic, uh, almost Im unimaginable struggle. Um, uh, in the First World War and is desperate for any edge, any advantage that it can seek. Um, and there w does appear to have been a belief, um, a rather misplaced probably, that um, uh, that Jews around the world could somehow have some positive influence on the British war effort, perhaps could um, uh, influence US uh, uh, government policy, perhaps could influence Russian policy in ways that were advantageous to the UK. And also there was a belief that a uh, Jewish national home, uh, uh, 
under British protection in the Middle East could advance uh, British imperial interests and, and goals uh, once the war uh, was over. So there was also a key factor of British interests, whether correctly or erroneously, belief, uh, or at least uh, the British uh, British ministers were open to be persuaded uh, that a Jewish national home... In, in some ways, quite interesting, because Weizmann... Uh, succeeded where Herzl had failed. Herzl spent a lot of time talking to the Germans. He spoke uh, to the Kaiser and to the Ottoman Empire, uh, and and without much success. So in, in some ways, uh, they managed to, to to kind of connect with the right people at the right empire at the right time. I think that's right. I think to, to understand that you have to understand this remarkable confluence of circumstances. Yes, the right people at the right time. Uh, persuading the government, you know, uh, uh, the the, victor- the the power that would ultimately become victorious and uh, in the conflict and gain control over the relevant piece uh, of territory. Uh, it was a remarkable uh, confluence of um, circumstances. This, of course, you know, built on the achievements of Herzl in laying the groundwork for the Zionist movement. The Zionist idea was not new. Uh, the Zionist movement had been up and running for 20 years and it had already had some significant successes. Um, uh, tens of thousands of Jews had already uh, made it to Palestine. Tel Aviv had already been established. The uh, the, ter- the piece of land on which the Hebrew University, where I work, uh, on which it would be built, had already been purchased. So there were already significant successes and that perhaps also sh- uh, was uh, uh, helped Weizmann to say to the British, look, what we've done in the last 20 years, we can really make this uh, this work. But it does rather speak to something inside the British politics at the time. And Britain not always exactly well known for its pro-Jewish sympathies. So was there a shift in the society at the time that helped to, to create that circumstance? I think it's um, important to, to recognize that there were, and I think to some extent continue to be, both uh, pro-Jewish and pro-Arab sentiments in uh, the British political elite and in British political culture. And that was certainly true at the time. Um, of course, during the First World War, um, the British uh, uh, developed a critical relationship with uh, um, with uh, Arab uh, uh, leaders as well and supported and worked with an Arab rebellion against the Ottoman Turks uh, and committed to the Arabs also that they would uh, have uh, uh, an Arab, independent Arab kingdom after the war in return for uh, their rising up against the Ottoman Turks in support of uh, of the British war effort. But many of the same people who were involved in those uh, um, dealings with um, Arab leaders, um, Hussein the Sharif of Mecca uh, and his sons, um, were also involved in, in dealing and negotiating with uh, with the Zionist movement. So um, there were um, both uh, the, there were sentiments were sometimes uh, seen in contradiction to one another, but other uh, but uh, at other times by other individuals seen as all part of serving uh, uh, UK interests and the UK agenda, both to win the war and to shape the Middle East after the war. I mean, do you think that this let's call it double dealing for lack of a better term accounts for the quite uh, I don't know, how would you say it's not a very strong declaration, as you said, uh, in support. It's uh, quite watered down. It talks about, you know, not harming the interests of other people living there and people who live in the UK. Do you think that there, there was some sort of ambiguity around the way that Britain actually established this thing in the first place? Yes, I mean, the document is is both very brief, very succinct, but also full of ambiguity. And I would, I would highlight two or three key ambiguities, and I think that they do indeed 
reflect a sensitivity to the fact that, the U that Britain has entered into other commitments, both the commitment I mentioned to support the establishment of an Arab, independent Arab kingdom, although the borders and extent of that kingdom is not very well defined in the negotiations between British officials and the leaders of the Arab revolt, and but there's also a, a promise that the, uh, and commitments uh, uh, that Britain has entered into with its ally France about how to divide up spheres of influence in the Middle East, the famous Sykes-Picot agreement. So there's two or three key ambiguities which I think are important to note. First of all, it's the promises, which well, is not exactly a promise, it's the expression of favour is for the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, which is uh, uh, you will notice, not a commitment to the establishment of a Jewish state, which of course was the goal of the Zionist movement. Their Judenstab, the fa famous pamphlet by Herzl, calls for a Jewish state. But this is something vague, a national home for the Jewish people. Well, what is a national home? Well, nobody really knows what a national home is. It's a phrase that was invented because they were not ready to go as far as committing to a state. They wanted to leave something open, also being aware that a majority of the population of Palestine were not Jewish at that time. Uh, they were Arab, so uh, there's a, obviously a sensitivity to that. And that's also reflected in some of the other sort of, um, uh, um, or the other uh, qualifications that are in the document. One is a, uh, a, a statement that it should be clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. And that's coming with this awareness that um, there are approximately five to six hundred thousand Arabs in Palestine and less than a hundred thousand Jews, perhaps ninety thousand Jews. Overall, we're talking about a rather sparsely populated territory, and it's certainly not some kind of um, unified uh, Arab state of Palestine, as some of some Palestinian supporters might like to imply in retrospect. But nonetheless, we have to acknowledge there was an Arab majority, and that's uh, and that's a sensitivity that's reflected in this reference to the civil and religious rights of non-Jews. And then finally, there is a reference to the uh, not prejudicing the political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. And that reflects a sensitivity towards British Jews, some of whom were opposed to the idea of a Jewish uh, national home and thought that it might undermine their status as equal citizens, uh, hard-earned status as equal citizens in Britain or indeed in any other country. Now, there has been some suggestion by Palestinian supporters um, that there's some sort of equivalence between the Balfour Declaration and, as you say, declarations given to, uh, with regards to Lawrence of Arabia, who was quite a famous figure here, uh, uh, Sharif, as you mentioned. I mean, do you think, first of all, uh, that the that the, the the set of promises given that the Balfour Declaration was a public declaration and the, the other ones were private, and also that there does seem to have been later on some fulfillment of the British promise to the creation of Jordan and some say even Saudi Arabia. And do you think that that uh, there was this double booking, if you like, of, of claim over the land through the, the British engagement? Well, you've touched on an absolutely key uh, historical uh, debate here, one which I think, to which I think there is no very uh, simple answer, whether or not this promised land, quote-unquote, was twice promised, promised once to the Jews and once to the Arabs. I think the, the idea that the same bit of land was, was promised to two different people simultaneously is rather simplistic. The, um, the nature of the negotiations and the commitments that Britain entered into, uh, in the Balfour Declaration, the, as you mentioned, a public commitment or a public uh, expression of support for the aims of the Zionist movement, the private and secret correspondence between 
Britain and the leaders of the Arab revolt against the Ottomans and the separate uh, uh, understandings entered into with France, um, you know, they were all uh, developed in, in different ways, in different, in different, uh, slightly different contexts and in slightly different uh, uh, forms. Britain afterwards always sought to claim that those promises uh, and commitments were indeed reconcilable. And because of its careful wording, both with respect to the Balfour Declaration and with respect to its um, commitments to the leadership of the Arab Revolt, um, which were which which the borders and extent of the Arab Kingdom were never precisely defined. Technically, I think um, the British can just about perhaps make their case that their that their commitments were not technically. Um, in contradiction to one another, or at least you could interpret them in such a way as to make them reconcilable. And indeed, uh, in 1921, um, uh, uh, Rothschild, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Churchill, who was then the colonial secretary, uh, attempted to reconcile the competing claims to Palestine by partitioning along the Jordan River. At that time, Palestine, the, the territory mandated to, the, to Britain, uh, included both banks of the River Jordan. So Churchill, in his own words, one Sunday afternoon, uh, at the stroke of a pen, partitioned that piece of territory along the Jordan River and created the uh, Emirate of Transjordan, what is now what we now know as the Kingdom of Jordan, uh, to the east of the river, and reduced the scope of the territory for the Jewish national home to the territory west of the river, what uh, uh, is the territory which is now the State of Israel, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. Um, so Britain, so Churchill said, by that way, he, he satisfied and reconciled the promises to the Arabs and the promises to the Jews. Of course, that didn't really consider the interests or concerns of the uh, of the Arabs who were living in Palestine uh, to the west of the river, uh, who still constituted a majority. So technically, Britain could claim that, it had that uh, its promises were consistent and it reconciled them all. But I think. We do have to acknowledge that ultimately, as I mentioned, in the context of the First World War, Britain was thinking, first of all, how it could um, advance its own position, strengthen its own position, uh, both with respect to the war, war, both with respect to winning the war and the circumstances after the war, and was not necessarily as upfront uh, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, and um, completely clear and frank with all the parties all, all the time. Now, we're coming up to 100 years in November of this particular document, and there's already been some activism ar around it, people signing petitions to get the, the British government to apologize, others celebrating it, doing a bit of uh, history around it. How do you think it's going to play out, given some of the tensions that we're seeing today as well? Well, you're right. I mean, the, the, uh, the Palestinian Authority has threatened to sue Britain, uh, for the Balfour Declaration, I think this is kind of a nonsense. It, it doesn't. I don't think it's any kind of realistic threat, uh, but it's just a kind of rhetorical expression of their uh, uh, of their feeling uh, and an attempt to kind of put some pressure on on Britain. And within Britain, there's a pro-Palestinian movement that is indeed calling on Britain to apologise for uh, the Balfour Declaration. But at the same time, there is uh, obviously the State of Israel will be uh, um, um, uh, celebrating uh, um, the. Um, uh, 100-year anniversary, I believe uh, Theresa May indeed invited Prime Minister Netanyahu to come to the UK uh, so that they could commemorate the event together, and that really reflects, I think, where the UK government is. Theresa May made very clear in a speech to the Conservative Friends of Israel in the UK uh, late last year that uh, her words were that Britain would 
uh, um, would mark with pride the Balfour Declaration, that Britain was proud of its role in bringing about the establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, and that reflects, I think, the broad thrust of the government position and the weakness, really, of the claim or the, the campaign of those that want to call for an apology for the Balfour Declaration. That said, I do think that Britain will, uh, particularly in its uh, foreign relations, uh, and with obviously its relations with the Palestinians, the Arab world and the wider Islamic world, will be also showing some sensitivity to um, the very different perspective that they have on the Balfour Declaration, which I uh, described earlier, uh, and the fact that for Palestinians in the wider Arab world and much of the Islamic world, the Balfour Declaration is seen as a betrayal, is seen as a, a, a part of a process in which um, Palestinians were dispossessed, uh, and the reality of the fact that many Palestinians did ultimately become refugees uh, as a result of the 1947-48 war, whoever we, you know, obviously that's its own historical debate as to the reasons for that, but from the perspective of Palestinians and Arabs, uh, that process, uh, the Balfour Declaration is a key moment in that process. So I think Britain will be uh, reflecting that sensitivity, uh, and perhaps uh, was uh, rightly so. Now, one of the things that uh, I think, let's call them extreme uh, Palestinian supporters, like to focus on is the notion of Israel as somehow a, a colonial entity. And I think it's become very fashionable, particularly in academia. And I think in Britain at the moment, there's a lot of discussion more so around India, uh, I think, uh, and maybe some of parts of Africa around Britain's role as a colonialist. Uh, do you think that this kind of discourse is going to pick up uh, and engage with the whole discussion of the Balfour Declaration, given Britain's imperial history. Uh, it's interesting you should mention India. I've just returned from the UK, and there are many, many documentaries being shown um, in the UK right now because of the uh, it's um, uh, 70 years uh, since the partition of India and, and Pakistan, so there are many documentaries screening on British television about the British role uh, in that. Um, so, yes, I think there is obviously a very strong uh, awareness uh, in the UK about Britain's um, uh, imperial and colonial past and the legacy of that. And there is uh, tension, debate about, uh, the, you know, about, about that legacy. Um, and so that does affect British political culture and British political thinking, um, although it varies where you are on the political map. Obviously, the further to the left you go the more you tend to subscribe to a kind of um, uh, a post-colonial uh, world view, a sense of uh, British imperial and colonial legacy is very, very negative um, and, uh, um, and uh, uh, something for which Britain ought to be, uh, ought to view with some shame and embarrassment uh, and some sense of, uh, sense of apology. Further to the right on the political map, you, you uh, um, tend to see, uh, you know, that, that, that sentiment is, is less. So you will see that kind of, see that breakdown to some extent, I think, on uh, ideological political land, lines, especially currently in the UK where you have the Labour Party led by uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who comes from the very radical left wing of the Labour Party, the, and that is the part of the Labour Party which strongly subscribes to a kind of post-colonial and anti-imperial, anti-colonial uh, world view, and that also ties in Part of that worldview is a is a, a hostility towards towards Zionism. Now that's not the only view in the Labour Party. Most 
MPs in the British Labour Party have a more moderate and balanced view, but uh, but um, uh, the radical left of the Labour Party is strong right now, and it comes with a very strong anti-Zionist sentiment uh, and sometimes a, a anti-Semitic sentiment also. And uh, we may well see that express itself uh, in the context of the uh, centenary of the Balfour Declaration. Now, let me ask you, despite the history and everyone having an argument and the navel-gazing and maybe a party between Theresa May and uh, Bibi Netanyahu, is is there actually any practical application of the Balfour Declaration today? Does it actually mean anything in practical terms? Uh, no, no, not really. It's, it's a historical debate. It doesn't mean anything in practical terms, but as, uh, as I've described... It, because of its importance as a historical turning point, its legacy is still felt, and it still forms an important part of the narrative of both sides in the current Israeli, in the contemporary Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For Jews uh, and for uh, Israelis and for the Zionist movement, part of the narrative of salvation, the narrative that leads up to the creation of the State of Israel in the wake of the Holocaust, and for Palestinians, part of their uh, history that leads leads up to the Nakba, to the catastrophe. So it well, remains I, I, very I, resonant. Toby, what I'm, I'm sorry, what I'm actually asking is more direct question. I mean, I know you're not a lawyer, but some people have argued that this kind of actually forms part of the international law argument uh, for the creation of Israel. I mean, are you of the opinion that we should look later on in the process? Ah, so I think that the, the, the critical things to keep in mind are these. Firstly, the Balfour Declaration is just a letter expressing UK support for an idea. What turns it into a legal uh, uh, fact is the mandate of the League of Nations. And that, I think, is really important for people to understand that the, the Jewish national home was not just created on a whim by the British. The British expressed their support. They had the political power to turn that, though, into an internationally supported legal fact in terms of the mandate of the League of Nations, which had the endorsement of the international community at the time. So that was the critical legal element, not the Balfour Declaration, but rather the mandate of the League of Nations, which incorporated within it the notion that Palestine, that a Jewish national home should be established in Palestine. But that in itself is, is now superseded by many other very important legal and historical developments. The 1947 partition plan, which was approved by a two-thirds majority of um, of the UN General Assembly, which proposed partitioning what was then British Mandate Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And on that basis, Israel then declared its, declared its independence in May 1948, and then was subsequently admitted as a full member state of the UN uh, in 1949. And these, um, these uh, 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 legal and historical facts, I think, supersede uh, um, uh, the, the others. But in terms of the justice, of the, of the creation of a Jewish national home and first principles, Jews and uh, Israel and its supporters can point to the League of Nations mandate and saying Jews um, uh, established their national home under the umbrella of an international legal uh, mandate, an incontrovertible uh, legal uh, mandate. And it's important also to say that it was not the Balfour Declaration or even the League of Nations mandate which created the Jewish National Home or the State of Israel. Those things were created by the Jewish people, by the Zionist movement, who bought land, who drained swamps, who developed uh, uh, industries, who developed agriculture, who developed um, the infrastructure and services and uh, 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 all of the um, um, 
uh, elements that became the State of Israel. That was created by the Zionist movement. It was the Balfour Declaration, then the League of Nations mandate, which created the opportunity for, for that to happen. Well, Toby Green, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. If people want to read your work, where can they find it? Well, am I writing on the Balfour Declaration? You can find at Fathom Journal. If you Google Fathom Journal and Balfour, you'll find my article uh, uh, there. And um, uh, you can also go to my website for a wider range of my publications, Toby Green, T-O-B-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E dot net, or follow me uh, Twitter, Toby underscore Green with an E underscore. There we go, Toby Green. He's from Bicom and the Israel Institute. Uh, he's a uh, Israel Institute at the Leonard Davis Center at Hebrew. He's a postdoc. Toby, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Thank you, Benji. Thanks so much.